Welcome to the Sports Equity Podcast. Here we talk to special guests from teams, brands, and agencies to discuss the value that sports brings to business through current trends and best practices with your host, Brett Weisbrot. Our guest is a graduate of Duke University, spending the last 18 years around the sports and live events industry, now building something special in Concierge Live. We welcome Brian Baslow to the program. Hey, hey, how's it going? Great to have this conversation with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Brad. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's exciting. So, you know, for those that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from? Yeah, sure. So I'm Brian Baslow. I'm the CEO of Concierge Live. We're a corporate ticket management software company uh, that plays in the sports ecosystem. I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that. I'm, I'm originally from a real small town in, in upstate New York called Utica, New York. And listen, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the sports industry and, and the sports business. That's great. And you know, at a young age, where would you say you first grew a passion for sports? I played a lot of sports growing up. I was a huge basketball player, basketball fan. By huge basketball player, I, I think I I was very excited about playing basketball. I was I was pretty good. Not not uh, I don't Duke certainly was not recruiting me for my basketball skills. Um, and it was always a part of me. And then um, you know when I was in college and and starting to get a little bit more serious about what I was actually going to do. Um, you know, I I originally was pursuing sort of a more finance specific route, but. Uh, I really wanted to see if I could marry my passion, which was really sports, with with a job, and and sort of that's how how I started. And just talking Duke for a quick second here, you know, growing up a basketball fan, what was it like, you know, going to games at Cameron and just being part of that experience? It was amazing. It was amazing. I wish I could teleport back every day for that. Um, Cameron Indoor Stadium is the best basketball experience you'll ever have. Uh, it was amazing. I wish I went to school for a hundred years as opposed to four. Um, and it's the, you know, it's the best thing I've ever done. That's great. So after graduating from Duke, you know, how and where did you get your first opportunity, you know, full-time in the sports industry? Yeah. So after graduate, I pursued several opportunities, you know, Brett, I'm sure you, you've had this experience as well. There just weren't as many obvious avenues and there wasn't as much transparency of just how to break into the sports industry. And so in this sort of disconnected research I did, most of the opportunities were in ticket sales. Uh, so I looked on every NBA team website. I was able to connect with Scott O'Neill, who's now the president uh, of Harris Blitzer Sports. Um, and at that time, he worked for the NBA, and he invited me to the NBA job fair. And so there, I was able to interview with all the NBA teams. And uh, I ended up with the, the Cleveland Cavaliers, which um, by, uh, I guess, a little bit intuition, but mostly luck, I, I was very, very fortunate to, to land in a great situation with some great people. And what did that role look like, you know, that first role? That role, it was, it was inside sales, uh, I think, which is a fancy word for mostly telemarketing. Um, and there, and they, the Cavs did an amazing job. Where, and it started with Len Komorowski, who's, who's still uh, head of business there. Um, and then Chad Estes and Mike Andreco, they ran an incredible culture where they would take 12 to 15 new people from college and give them beginner sales training uh, and you had about a two to three week intensive training. And then they, they sent you off uh, into trying to cultivate business on your own. And, and they gave you some training wheels as well. They would help you with calls. They would go on appointments with you. And ultimately, as you would mature into your own salesperson, uh, it was an incredible experience. But it is a humbling experience, Brett. And I know you've, you've been a part of it as well. Uh, making 100 calls a day 
maybe one of those people being willing to talk to you doing that day after day, um, you know, you do some soul searching on, on, on your bad days. And this was during the early LeBron years? It was, it was 2003. So I, I started training and the Cavs were uh, not that, I mean, honestly, the Cavs were the worst team in the NBA at that point. Um, but in my first month, uh, we got the, uh, we won the NBA lottery. So we knew we were going to have LeBron James and, and the job certainly got easier after that. That's great. And what would you say was your biggest challenge at the time? I had a couple of different challenges. Listen, I think sales in general is very hard. Uh, and I also think until you get it, until you know what the life cycle of a sales process is, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And somebody who is very hard on themselves like me, again, until you've seen it, until you've seen success and know what it looks like, you go through these stages and you're, you're kind of walking in the dark a little bit. So I found that to be relatively hard. Um, I found, and then the other thing I found was once we got LeBron um, is we were all sort of selling, you know, it was, it was a, it was a big sales bonanza. So at that point it's, how do you break through? How do you differentiate yourself uh, as a really good seller? So those were the two kind of parallel challenges. And at this point, you know, talking inside sales, telemarketing, where do you see yourself long-term? <laughs> it it kind of depended on the day. Um, what, what, my honest answer is I was surrounded by what I, what were really successful people. And they just, my intuition was the, these people knew what they were doing. And again, I'm speaking about Chad, I'm speaking about Mike, and I'm speaking about Len Kamarowski. And so the vast majority, and at 21 years old, a lot of success to me was, hey, they seem like they're, they know what they're doing. I really want to replicate everything they've done. I want to soak up everything that I'm learning from them and kind of mimic what they're doing in many ways. And hey, if I can just sort of parallel, if I, if, if I can mirror their career, that would be a huge success. I mean, hell, I'm still trying to do some of that with, with a couple of those guys. Um, but that's, that's what success looked like to me in my first year uh, uh, in the industry for sure. So, you know, then from the Cavs, you moved on to New Jersey. If I remember correctly, it was either still Brendan Byrne or the IZOD Center at the time. It was the IZOD Center. Good times. I remember growing, growing up with it even way before that. You know, how was your transition there and in, in getting into your first management opportunity? You know, it was great. It, it was wonderful, um, but it was a little mixed as well. So my entire sort of career with Cavs, and I was there for a little over two years, I was a pure seller. Uh, surrounded by a very safe sort of ecosystem of people. Um, so it was a great experience and a great culture. Transitioning to New Jersey, again, I was led by some amazing uh, executives in the industry and Brett Yormark and Fred Manjone. It was my first managerial experience. And my intuition on how good I would be as a manager and what it actually was like in the first year were just two different things. I, I just, it was a steeper learning curve than I thought. Um, and so I, I loved that year because I think I learned so much, but I, I learned through failure a lot. And I'll tell you, Brett, the, the, so the biggest thing was I came in and again, I was a little bit of a younger manager thinking that I would compensate for a lack of experience with just a lot of rah-rah and a lot of energy, which I think was good. I mean, people want a lot of energy, but what I lacked at that point was authenticity, uh, which I think is, is the most important thing when you're managing people. And I, and I think my team could smell it. Uh, that I was just this, it was too, too energetic, too faux positive. And, and I lost them a little bit. And I'm glad, listen, I'm glad I had that experience, but in the moment when your team, you know, 
doesn't isn't connecting with you as much doesn't feel great right and you know what did you enjoy most about being able to build or sculpt your own team at the time yeah i mean and, and again i'll talk to you about parallel tracks there i mean the the thing as now a 39-year-old, the thing I appreciate the most is learning that authenticity is really important and trying a lot of things, failing, and finally realizing like, hey, just be who you are. And whether people like that or not, people will respect it the most. And that's the best way to get them to follow you and that that and good habits. And then to answer your specific question about building my own team, listen, I inherited a team and I, I learned how to sort of manage that. And then building your own team is, is kind of exciting. You know, you feel like a coach, you feel like a GM of, hey, I know you know, from a tangible standpoint, where we want to go as an organization, hey, who are the players that I want to sort of go on the battlefield with to do that? And I find that really fun. And I think, Brian, you, you, you know this from your background as well. Listen, we could do anything. I mean, listen, this skill set is transferable. We could be insurance salesmen. I could be selling copiers right now. Um, you do it in sports because you want this team uh, and this kind of fraternal uh, a connection that maybe you don't get in every organization. So that was really, really fun. And what would you say were some, you know, some areas of discipline on your end or some skill sets you looked at then hiring staff that maybe stuck with you throughout your career? Yeah. The, what I did then is similar to what I do now, which is I'm really sort of gauging two things, which is one is a talent level. And then the second is an, is a projected sort of energy and effort level. The second one being, way more important. Um, you know, the nice thing about sports, the nice thing about business development, although it is a little bit more sophisticated than some people give it credit for, listen, we're not doing brain surgery. And I think a lot of effort and a lot of energy uh, and, a, and a huge time commitment goes a long way. Sure, it's nice to be naturally talented in best business development. It's nice to have good communication skills. But, you, you know, if you weren't born Jerry Maguire, you can compensate with a lot of good effort. And I like that about, I like that about business development. And who, I know you mentioned a couple of names, but, you know, who had the biggest impact, you know, who was your direct report? Who had the biggest impact on you at the time growing as a manager? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a conglomeration, I'd say, of all of it. I mean, I, when I think of Brett Yormark, I just think of the incredible energy and the sort of absolute refuse to lose attitude that I really respect. And, and frankly, in my own job now, um, as head of a smaller organization, uh, I, I really sort of relate to now. There's Fred Manjoan, who is the best I've ever seen at being able to relate to every person in an organization and have a human connection with every one of them and really be the one that keeps the wheels moving, uh, both high and low in the organization. And then when I think of Chet Estes and, and Mike Andreco, I think of an incredible culture um, and a culture of winning and, and, and the best I've ever seen at um, sticking to your principles. Um, and in the short term, might be very hard to do, but it, it really pays off long term. Just ask the investors of legends. Right. And, you know, you mentioned the word culture, but what was the culture like at the time? Uh, different cultures in both places, um, you know, in the Cavs. Uh, and, and I guess there are a lot of similarities, too, but the Cavs just had such an incredible and this is in early 2000s, had such an incredible focus on constantly shuttling in new people, new people, and having this sort of homegrown talent that was trained by them, and then uh, sort of promoted up through the ranks. There was definitely a version of that that happened at the Nets. Um, but I do think operating a business in New York City uh, is different. 
And I think there was much more, and I respect this a lot, and listen, I still, I still live in New York City and operate a lot in New York City, is the pressure on results in New York are different. Um, and I do think um, it requires a little bit more mentality. There's an aggressiveness because there are so many people selling so many things um, that there is uh, a need for, a heightened need for an ability to break through the clutter. And how do you get attention? How do you differentiate yourself? And quite frankly, how do you get in and get out with very busy people that, you know, there's a hundred people hawking something to them. Um, so anyways, I'm, you know, that's a long-winded answer, but those were my experiences in the two different places. And how did the evolution of the Nets and the move to Brooklyn help you develop your skill sets? It was incredible. It was awesome. I mean, listen, I, I, I mentioned it before sort of my own personal journey on becoming a manager. And I, and I really appreciate that. The other thing I got to give Brett and Fred credit for is they gave me a lot of room to fail and to learn on my own. Whereas others would have either just not kept me or uh, sort of said, hey, this is what we do. This is only what we do. And this is the only sort of lane that you can go in. They, they really let me do my own thing. So that was great. So that was from a managerial standpoint. When you build a new building, particularly in New York City, like we did with Barclays Center, you just learned so many things. I mean, that when, also, when it was all said and done, it was probably a four-year process for the business executives from you know groundbreaking to all the pre-selling to um, the, the, the year lead up and then to the through the first year of actual events. Um, I learned more in that period than, I, than, than I've ever learned. And you learn it outside your lane. I mean, listen, my day job is, is either you know, selling uh, entertainment assets or managing others doing that, maybe managing an expense budget. When you're building a building, it's all hands on deck on everything. I, you know, I learned about plumbing. I learned about gap accounting. I never knew I was going to do that. And quite frankly, it's these little niche factoids, you'd be shocked how often they come, you know, later in life, you're like, hey, I'm glad I needed to know that back then, because it actually came in handy now. And it's interesting to think that, you know, I don't know about you, but I know Fred and some of the executives are still commuting from Jersey every day to Brooklyn once that transition was done. It was incredible. I mean, it was incredible. And it was a huge operation. It was an incredible number of people. I mean, it was 24-7. Um, and, but it was really, I mean, Brent, I'm sure you, you feel this with your own career and, and all, the, all your peers. It was a hard project. It was a steep climb, but the harder, the harder the climb, the more satisfying it is when you're done. And man, that first night when Jay-Z was, was on stage and the building was done, man, that was, it was just a really, really fulfilling day of what was, you know, three, four years of very intense work. Yeah. Brett had some birthday party. Brett had some birthday party. That was great. It was, it was lovely to be, I, I felt uh, uh, privileged to be invited, me and, and his 18,000 closest friends. That's amazing. And, you know, in this role, I know you continue to grow to rapid speed, right into the chief strategy officer on the ticketing and premium side. You know, what would you say attributed most to that? You know, listen, I, I, I try to mirror what, what I tell others to do, which is, you know, constantly work on my skill set and then constantly put in a, a, a big time commitment and, and hard work. And I do think that paid off. And then, and again, I, Brett and, and Fred, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, forever thankful for them to give me, you know, just an increasingly large portfolio um, as I got older in the organization. And, you know, it went from tickets to tickets and suites. Um, and then with the evolution of the sort of hospitality business, um, my role evolved. And, um, and there's been an incredible amount of data and measurement um, that has come into to that space right now. And listen, when I grew up, there was, there was 
a very developed sort of primary ticketing market. And then there was a secondary market that, you know, everybody sort of whispered about at parties. That has become a very mature uh, ecosystem that um, now requires sort of a different business model. Um, and I think, you know, we at Brooklyn, we're very much, you know, on the forefront of that. And since I've been gone, not only Brett and his team, but now John, John Abamondi, who's a good friend and his team, they're taking it even to another level, uh, investing, uh, particularly in data, science and measurement as it relates to the hospitality space. And then, you know, after the Nets, you know, went uh, to lead sales as SVP of NFL on location. You know, how was that experience? It was, uh, I loved it. It was incredible. So first of all, again, I, I feel very privileged to work for some great people. Um, John Collins, who was the CEO at the time, uh, was, was really an incredible person to work for and had sort of a, 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 a similar background to sort of Brett and Len and Chad and that crew, but also different. Um, you know, he was, a, he was the chief operating officer of the NHL. He had a huge role in the NFL before. He, his relationships throughout the uh, the industry uh, were really impressive. So it was great to, to be able to have sort of a direct relationship with him. And then tangential to that, we were owned by two private equity firms of, of two people that I just really respect and, and had sort of knew tangentially, but didn't get to work for and feel privileged for, which is, um, you know, George Pine at Bruin Capital um, and Jerry uh, at, at Redbird were I mean, listen, they are leaders in the industry right now. And there is so much private equity activity in the industry. To be able to get in four years ago, um, it, it was a real pivot point in what will be the probably the rest of my career. And even and on top of that, having a strong supporting cast with people like Dan Rosenthal on your team to support you and, and have strong legs on the ground at all times. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have done it without Dan Rosenthal um, and Deanna Forgione at the time. And, and, and we, had a, we had a great team. Many of them are still there um, doing great things. And that's a different, that's a different animal, Brett. I, you know, you, you've experienced this working in a couple of market-specific things. Well, you, know, you, you work in New York City for 14 years like me. You think you've done it all. Pivoting to the NFL and the NFL's tentpole events, particularly the Super Bowl, it is, it is a different animal uh, sort of managing a business development operation that's nationwide and international. And the NFL is, is, is just in a class by itself as far as its reach and the kind of people that want to go to the Super Bowl and that you're marketing to, you know, it, it was overwhelming in the beginning, but um, certainly, certainly is exciting to have that experience now. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. What was it like selling premier properties, not just around the country, but like you said, some even around the world? I mean, part of it is, and I, you know, you figure it out over time, but even in New York City, the biggest market in the world, it's manageable, right? You, you, you kind of figure out how to canvas the geographic areas and the different business verticals and you figure it out. It's manageable. When, you, when it's internet, like, where do you start? You know, that was my biggest thing for the first couple of weeks. It's like, where do you start? What do you do? What do you prioritize? Um, and, and you figure it out over time. And listen, I hope, listen, I hope Concierge Live, you know, has, has the same uh, scale as the NFL someday. Um, but it just also teaches you problem-solving skills of, okay, sure, you haven't done it before. Here is the mental roadmap of how, how, do, we, how do we attack this challenge? Well, I guess the positive is no matter where the event is, there's an endless amount of leads. That's true. That definitely is. That is definitely true. And having sold the Cavs pre-LeBron or the Super Bowl, 
you'd rather have more leads and have it be a little overwhelming than have a finite number of leads and be able to handle them. Right. And, you know, how did this role challenge you in leading that team on such an expansive and national scale? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest things were that and, and the vast majority of my time, particularly my early career was on sort of a low ish. Hey, how do you optimize lowish demand products? The Cavs were sort of, we had LeBron, but um, it was still small and there the, the Cavs had struggled for so long. We were still always battling that a little bit of the a legacy of the last 10 years of really struggling. And the Nets, the basketball team, when I was there for the vast majority of it, had struggled. We had some pockets where we were good, but most of my job was, hey, how do we, hey, it's a tough product, but a good market. How, how do we sort of optimize that? <clears throat> the, the, um, the, the, the growth at the NFL level was there's, inc there's incredible demand, but there's also, okay, great. So what does that mean for pricing? What does that mean for packaging? How do you optimize revenue in that sense of not just making the best of a tough situation, but really making the best of an incredible situation? Um, so there's always a tension there and there's always a challenge. Um, and this was just, this was just a different one. Again, on balance, I'd rather live in a popular lane and try to figure out how to make good with a, with a great problem. And I'm sure face-to-face -face was really important when you were there, but do you think it would have been more beneficial with the change in virtual appointments over the last 15 months to when you were been, at, on location? It would have been huge. And we did do some virtual things. Listen, at, at on location, it was a, it was just, it would, it was, we did do a fair amount of traveling and for tent pole partnerships, you would go anywhere, but we had thousands and thousands and thousands of smaller hospitality packages and you weren't just going to fly off the handle um, anywhere just for, just for a, you know, prospective meeting. I wish I could teleport back four years ago where Zoom has now become, you know, the norm uh, because I think our conversion rate would have been so much higher. I do think trying to sell a $20,000 product over the phone or a $100,000 product over the phone um, is still a challenge. I, I think as much as people are buying a product, I still, to some degree, they are buying you. And the more of you they can get, um, and the, the higher the degree of the touch point, the better chance you have. So that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, Zoom, Zoom would have been a big deal. Yeah, you're talking 15 to 20 appointments in a day now versus maybe in the past you're getting three face-to-face in. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And just even in my own experience, and I know we'll talk about it a little bit with concierge live. I mean, the, the, the idea to look, be able to look face to face with somebody and um, sort of test drive your product at the same time is a big deal. I'll tell you another thing that I did not expect in this pandemic, but people like seeing what you got going at home. You don't know what, like, don't fool yourself. They're looking at your apartment. They're looking at, they're, they're laughing at your kids. And it could be a positive, by the way. Everybody's like so concerned about their, you know, kids or dogs barking or whatever. I sell ticket software. It's kind of nice to break it up a little bit if, you're, if your kid, you know, crashes off of a couch. It gives you a little break in what it can be a 30, you know, an intense 30 minute conversation. Well, you mentioned earlier about the importance of authenticity, right? That's about as authentic as it gets. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it, you know, keeps people on board. And again, no matter what it is, you could be doing tickets, whatever the product is, there, there is some modicum of they're buying you. Um, and a lot of these products, by the way, they're commoditized. They can get it from me, they can get it from somebody else. Again, the reason why do they do it for me is because they're buying me a little bit. Right, that they like working with you. There's some trust. You know, on that note, talking concierge live, perfect transition. You know, can you tell us where the idea was founded and maybe a top level view of the platform? Sure, sure. So the, the um, 
the product started, this is a 12 year old company that I've been involved with for two years as, as a partner and the, the CEO of the company. Um, the, the founding partner, Trent Hopkins is still in the company. Uh, he leads our product vertical. Um, and it really manifested itself from, he was the head of one of the, ma- the, the head of hospitality for one of the major banking institutions in, in the city, uh, or excuse me, in the, in the country. And his role was uh, this bank had an enormous uh, ticket portfolio and they were spending an incredible amount of time managing tickets and internal requests uh, and internal approvals on, on, through, on tickets that were embedded in sponsorship. They were spending an incredible amount of time on spreadsheets and there was, there was no efficient measurements um, system of, hey, like we're spending millions of dollars on tickets. Are we using them? How many are we using? How many are going to waste? And by the way, who's using them? Is it the CEO or is the janitor using half the tickets? And he was smart enough to identify, hey, one, there's got to be a better way to handle this that, that automates a lot of this process. And two, tickets are getting more and more and more expensive. Uh, business owners are going to want to know, hey, what they're going to want to measure return on investment on these hospitality products. And, and from those two problems, he created a solution uh, that addressed both of them. It's interesting because I think back to the old Panther days and we had a good one sheet that talked about the effective usage of Florida Panthers tickets, right? And this one basic as it is, it's real. And now you're giving someone the actual platform to be able to input what they have, input who they're talking to, tier where to start with giving certain level things out, right? And I think that's important. You know, when you look at the Chases and the MetLife's and, and the, the, some of the big companies right in your backyard right now, that it's important for them to drive business and, and work referrals and retain and and how else can you do that but giving people memorable experiences? You, you, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. And again, um, the the explosion of sports sponsorships, the explosion of of ticketing, and the the higher degree of scrutiny of measurement of businesses are not just free will and buying anything and kind of hey if we use it great or not if we don't that's fine too. People really want to know if I'm buying these assets, am I using them? Are they aligning with my business goals? And again, they need some tool to do it. You know, a spreadsheet won't do it. So that's where that's where Concierge Live comes. By the way, just to share in your your uh, past as well, I remember this as well when I was selling suites, there or selling tickets or suites, and there was always price, location, product, and then usage of the tickets. And I, twelve years ago, I was giving someone a document of a hundred ways to use your tickets. I cannot think of a sillier way to uh, approach an objection than, oh, oh, you're worried about usage? Here, let me email you a hundred ways. Hey, you know what I mean? It's like, it's as patronizing as it gets. And finally, and that's why we partner with venues and leagues and teams as well, because selling suites is hard. There's a lot of, an ev- there, are, there are a lot of events. I think customers are a little intimidated by being able to effectively use all those tickets. And I think the venues partner with us saying, hey, you know, don't worry about that objection. We have a partner that'll help you do that. And we have a tool that'll make life a lot easier for you. And if you're at the Nets, for example, right, where I have a passion and you've been, you know, you're looking at a seven-figure suite investment now with where they've grown to. And without a platform like this, how do you tell the person making the decision or signing the check that, hey, this is has an ROI, like this is moving our company in the right direction? 100%. That's why we got to sell it. That's why we got to send everybody this podcast. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the value that this Concierge Live brings to the consumer and the users, but in what ways have you and the platform evolved over the past year? A lot. 
a lot. I mean, one is, you know, this, the, the sort of pause in live events gave us a lot, a lot of room to really work on our technology. And, and a couple of areas we've really focused on is the pivot from physical tickets to mobile tickets. Um, there are a couple of competitors in this space and only a couple of us um, can manage mobile ticketing in a really efficient way. So that's an area where we really spent time. Um, and then the other is, um, well, a couple of others. Uh, compliance, uh, particularly uh, compliance, continues to be a really big area and kind of a friction point of managing tickets and how can technology sort of automate what is a lot of paperwork or a lot of clicks or a lot of whatever internal for, for clients. I think we've been able to automate that process and really streamline it. Um, and then lastly, uh, either, either on the measurement side or tickets are evolving. The, the word ticket bank comes up where it used to come up, you know, once in 10 conversations now it comes up in eight out of every 10 conversations of, hey, we don't have traditional season tickets. We've, we've done a relationship with a venue where, you know, we, we have a, a bank of 500 tickets over the year. And, and that's even harder to administrate and do on spreadsheets. So having a, having a software that cleans that up uh, really makes a difference. That's interesting, I guess, especially for the teams that have the have the inventory to be able to still supplement that. I know there's some of these season ticket passes where you don't even know what your seats are going to be every game, right? So you have to adapt to say, hey, I have four for Call the Orlando Magic tonight. They're going to X and then we can put in the location later and determine maybe what the value of that location was. Yeah, and kudos to kudos to the teams and leagues for pivoting to this um, because it's harder to administrate. But ultimately, in 2021, that's what the customer wants. The customer wants what they want, and they don't want they, what they don't want. And a traditional season ticket is so rigid on you have the same seat. It used to be the same price for every single game. And now it's, it's now not only is it fluid in price, um, but the customer has much more control over getting what they want and sort of um, not, not being forced to buy the assets that they don't want. But the challenge with that is all of the systems have been built on, hey, this square peg goes in this square hole. Well, once they now that they're asking for round pegs, we're kind of the round hole uh, that can help them manage all that. Yeah, the other piece of that, just thinking from, a, I guess, from the benefit of the team and sometimes even the user, you know, you're... Um, you know, mutually beneficial in the sense where with variable pricing nowadays, it gives the team a chance to wait till the day of to see what's left, you know, knowing they have to keep 500 seats off the board or whatever that is, but they can maximize sellable inventory and then within 24 hours fill the slots and sometimes to the user benefit, they're getting a better location because something might have been priced too high. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, there's a million iterations of it. And, um, you know, we, we pride ourselves on, on being more configurable and, and sort of solving more hospitality situations than, than any other. So the magic question, who's an ideal client for Concierge Live? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked I me. Mean, really, any, anybody with a, a ticket portfolio, whether you're a sports sponsor, whether you're just hospitality only, um, you know, we, we really, we operate with partners that anybody from owns four season tickets to one team, so we have some ticket portfolios of, of companies that have 250,000 ticket assets. Um, and we're, we're happy to work with any in between. That's amazing. So last question I have for you today is, you know, for those just starting out or growing in the industry, what advice would Brian Baslow give them? Yeah, I, I give them, I, it's a great question. I, I would give them a couple of different uh, ranges of advice. The first thing is, I, I, I think 
people are the most important things and mentors are the most important things. You don't know what the hell you're doing once you get out of college, no matter how smart you think you are. And I think aligning yourself with A, people that do know what they're doing uh, and seem to align with you know, your moral goals and your business goals. I think finding those people are great. Um, I think one, it gives you, it anchors you a little bit of figuring out what you want to do with your own life. And two, typically those kind of people are upward moving. And as they move and you can prove yourself to them, they'll bring you with them. Um, so by far, surrounding yourself with the right people is the most important thing. The second thing is kind of intuitive and kind of lame, which is, or not lame, but just, just plain is nothing replaces hard work. And I mean that from whether you're the CEO of a company or listen, if you're an intern and you're just doing a lot of copies and filing, just do those faster and better than everybody else copying and filing because it will get noticed. It will break through the clutter. And then when there's limited opportunities right above you, they're going to pick the fastest copier and the fastest filer. And it's, and it's easy. All it takes is effort. Um, and then the last thing I talked about before is just, just be authentic, be yourself. People can smell it when you're being fake. Um, people really like authenticity. If you're funny, be funny. If you're serious, be serious. If you're whatever you are, be that. Don't be someone you're not um, because uh, it just, you know, you might, you might fool a couple people, but long-term it's not going to work for you. And uh, I really do. You know, people like a range of personalities and a range of things, but they like you to be authentic about it. Um, and that's probably a lesson that I've learned latest in life, but it is a valuable one. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today. It was great catching up and you know, look forward to chatting with you soon. Thanks so much, my friend. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Sports Equity Podcast, where we discuss the value that sports brings to business. Follow us for new episodes on a weekly basis. See you next time.